0: It's a fact, life can be hard and dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience and it can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we'll look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. Hello, I'm Sinead and I'm joined by my colleague Brian. Hello. And my colleague Elle. Hi. And we're part of Positive Group, a team who uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being.
1: That was when I think the tidal wave started. I. You know, it'd gone from one or two comments under my posts to probably 10, 20 or 30 and loads of messages in my inbox. And they were all abusive. You know, all of them. Today, we're
0: going to be looking at the story of Hersha Patel, who experienced online abuse and global shaming when a rice cooking video went viral for all the wrong reasons. Brian, how do you think you would deal with a global shaming?
2: Very badly. As social animals, we want to be included in the group. We really care about how we're seen in the eyes of others. And if other people have got an idea that uh, we're bad or we shouldn't be in the group, that can make us feel very frightened, very distressed. I think this is true for all of us. I mean, I think we care what our what people think of us, but particularly what our friends and uh, colleagues think of us. So I think I think this is a very powerful trigger in human beings.
0: What about you, Elle? How do you think you would handle a global shaming? I thought you were going to ask us, do you know how to cook rice? <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I was going to say, not really. No, <laughs> No. Um, I find rice quite tricky. But um, yeah, I think the word shame itself, it's meant to tap into something we hate. It's just really unpleasant. So that sounds pretty heavy.
0: Yeah, I'm intrigued to know how the words rice and global shaming go together. And we're about to find out. There are many different ways to deal with online abuse. What I'm interested to know is how Hersha managed to deal with it on such a large scale and what it was like to be on the receiving end of such negative public attention. Listeners beware, this episode does contain some colourful language, so listener discretion
1: is advised. I think cancel culture is, it's like a virus. You know, Keep in keeping with this 2020 COVID situation, I feel like it's something that starts off as very innocuous. It can start off really well-meaning actually, or as a joke, in my case. And it can trigger something in someone that has a knock-on effect, like a virus, multiply, and um, become something incredibly negative, and that can ruin a life or more. It's devastating, and no way fulfills what maybe originally it was meant for. So, you know, it's incredibly dangerous. My name's Hersha Patel. I am an actor, presenter, and filmmaker, and social media content creator. Hello, internet. Uh, Hi guys, welcome back to my YouTube channel. Do you like my new hat? Um, So from
2: 2015
1: to 2018, I'd say there were two things going on. There was me, the super, super ambitious, striving to succeed, wanting to make a name for myself, wanting to be, fulfil a purpose or an ambition, not really knowing what it was, but kind of knowing, and then being ill. Having a chronic illness, chronic fatigue syndrome, which basically sucked all of the energy and life out of me. For long periods of time, I couldn't work. I couldn't leave the house. And as someone who is from a minority, I had been trying to sort of break the area of presenting, you know, there's a lot of competition. Jobs were very few and far between. And if I wanted to go for this, I really had to make some opportunities for myself. So um, because YouTube was around, I decided to start a YouTube channel. And I decided to do food because I was interested in food. um, But I think I would have rather have been doing, you know, comedy sketches and fiction, but I kind of didn't didn't think I could do that. So that's the road I went down. I've got a frying pan here. Get that onto a medium heat and then just add a little bit of oil. And so when the BBC approached me, they asked me to host a series of recipes for You, you don't want the eggs to cook too much, you just want them to slightly set. They'll cook more once you put them back in with the rice. So one of the recipes that I did for them was egg fried rice. And I knew these weren't traditional recipes. It was for a specific audience. So the idea being very, very basic. I didn't even think twice about it. It was a great opportunity for me. I'd barely worked since I'd been ill. So I was really, really excited. And um, it was a very important moment for me in lifting me out of the feeling that I was never going to get anywhere, you know, which I felt after being sick for so long. So I never imagined or considered it to be a step in the wrong direction. And so, yeah, that that was it, really. I did the job. It was fun. It was a couple of days of shooting and it went up on the website and I, I literally forgot about it. So the start of 2020, for me, I was pumped to be going into. I was really excited. I'd been employed as an actor, um, doing some short online jobs, and I had signed to an agent. 2020 was looking to be a really exciting year for me. And then COVID happened. Acting classes stopped, shooting stopped, um, all the work dried up. At that point, I wasn't producing YouTube content. I completely panicked. What am I gonna do now? I went into quite a bit of a anxious, depressive hole. I was so frustrated and so hungry to be making stuff and doing stuff and producing and writing. And I just felt suddenly these bars that had closed in around me and all my motivation had gone. And then the um, global shaming happened. (laughs) So I woke up one morning um, and did my morning routine. Um, And I think I was just looking on my Instagram, you know, after all that. And I I think I'd got a few comments under a post. But the comments were, you can't cook rice. And I just thought, well, that's weird. Uh, So I just ignored it. And then a couple days later, and I looked again. And that was when I think the tidal wave started. um, Because I... You know, it'd gone from one or two comments under my posts to probably 10, 20 or 30 and loads of messages in my inbox. And they were all abusive, you know, all of them. And they were like, you call yourself a cook, um, you're disgusting, you don't know how to make rice. Like rice, I haven't even cooked rice, what are you talking about? And then I looked on my YouTube channel and I was getting, you know, there were comments under some of the videos there as well. Dishonour your ancestors. You don't know how to cook, do you? BBC's recipe for murdering the rice. The BBC food woman has committed blasphemy against eating fried rice. Asia's most wanted woman, case, murder, victim, rice. I mean, I did delete a lot of the worst ones, uh, but I remember on the whole, there were people that saying I deserve to die, that I should kill myself. Um, that I was a racist bitch. That was one of them. I, I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I remember thinking, holy crap, what What the hell is going on? And so I was like, okay, let me look into this. And this guy, Nigel Ung, the comedian, had created a character called Uncle Roger. And his debut video was watching the egg fried rice video from the BBC that I'd made a couple of years back watching it and roasting it. And that was his kind of comedy style. Hello,
2: my name is Uncle Roger. Today, I will react to a video sent to me by a fan. It's the BBC Good Food How to Make Egg Fire Rice video.
1: And I watched a bit of it and I and I was like, oh, well, this is comedy. Why is everyone giving me a hard time about it? <laughs> like, seriously, this is actual, like,
2: what? What are you doing? Drain the... Ra- oh, my God. You're killing me, woman. Hiya, drain the... Ra- She's draining rice with coal and high
1: The problem people had with the practical recipe was that the rice wasn't washed and it was drained. And so I thought, you know what, this is just going to go away. So my immediate thought was, I'm just going to try and ignore this. I didn't even talk to my husband. I was just like, yeah, this will just go away. I'll just leave it. People will forget and get bored. And then probably the next day, because obviously I was starting to get a bit sweaty about it, I turned my phone on and it was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I never even used to get one or two. And suddenly I had a full inbox and I spent about a year umming and ahhing about posting YouTube content because I was so terrified about getting a mean comment, just one mean comment. So for me, having sort of tens of hundreds of people sending me hate messages, I felt physically sick, Like, and I didn't think it could get worse. At that point, it was like, well, this is this is hell. That was the point where I was like, oh, crap, this is not good. I need to do something about it. Little did I know that it was going to get exponentially worse. The minute the global shaming happened, I was in a different headspace. Like, I literally didn't know what was going on. It was like I was having a complete out-of-body experience. My first feeling was real, intense shame, and I felt so embarrassed. And I'm, you know, I'm only human. Obviously, I'm going to get upset and defensive at stuff. Although I was controlling my persona online, which was, everything's funny, I'm light-hearted and breezy. But it, there's also the side which is angry, defensive, paranoid and pissed off. <laughs> because I'm human, you know, and that's, that's the range of emotions we all have. And so when I was getting attacked online, yeah, I got really, really annoyed. And I would, you know, sometimes I'd read some comments and I'd write something back like, screw you, you twat, and um, then I'd delete it. That's what I'd do, um, because it felt cathartic. But from that point on, I just thought to myself, there is no point in being angry online. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be as positive as I can, and I'm not going to argue with angry people the best way to diffuse a situation or to kind of take ownership of it is, for me, was to use humour. That was the way I made content. And he was a comedian as well, so that was perfect. So I just thought, you know what? He's obviously done something that is kicking off for him in a very positive way. He was suddenly in millions of views. So from his, his perspective, he was doing really well. So I, I wrote in this message and I said, Hey Nigel, Um, great to see your videos doing so well, Uh, really stoked for you. Not so great over here, Uh, where do you live? We should meet up and do a collaboration. And he immediately replied and said, Oh my God, thank you so much for getting in touch. I, you know, I never meant for anything bad to happen to you, I had no idea. I just thought it was going to get a few, you know, 100 views and that'd be it. Uh, yes, let's meet up. I live in London as well. And that was the first step towards kind of dealing with it.
0: So what I find quite spooky is how something that's seemingly really small can gain such traction so quickly and can spread so widely. I think that's particularly scary when you think about the fact that Hersha hadn't actually done anything. So so to her mind, there was no kind of run up to this. Elle, I think one of the interesting parts of the story so far for me has been Hersha's experience of actually being attacked So actually, this is a victimization. This is something that has happened to her. And I know that you've done a lot of work in the past looking at bullying and victimization. So what are your initial thoughts on this?
3: I think the anonymous nature of online. So what they've found is if users are anonymous to the extent they're sort of private accounts, there isn't that accountability. So you see more regression from anonymous individuals than when people have open or public profiles. And also when someone starts abusing or victimising and there gets a bit of momentum behind it, there's kind of this disinhibition effect whereby others feel like that's okay, and there's a norm. And there's no consequences. So often if you see bullying or victimisation that happens in person, you have to see the impact you have on the individual. But they don't actually see the impact they're having on Hersha. And there aren't any consequences. And at a social
0: level, it's not being judged. And it's important to understand that the algorithms that social media platforms generate, they are designed to build traction, to get more eyeballs on something, to get more audience participation, more likes, more sharing, more commenting. So very quickly, actually, the original source or the validity of a particular point or comment or argument becomes less important. And what becomes more important is people's commentary on the situation. And there very quickly, you can see something go down a very different path. And we've seen this time and again with the the real rise in spreading of fake news and misinformation. We've seen that more recently around the vaccination. I think one of the things that I find really spooky is the intentionality of it. So Uncle Roger being a comedic character and Hersha could see straight away when she watched the video, she was like, this is, this is comedy. You know, this is intentional to get a reaction in a funny way. And she could see that straight away. But actually that's misinterpreted then. And then once a label gets put onto it, That is emotionally provocative. So, if it is that there is a a hint of cultural misappropriation, you know, Hersha was facing um, claims that she was racist because of it. So, once these tags get attached to things, they really can start to, to gain traction because then this moves into a realm where these are things that people do really care about. You know, these are things that do matter to people. And if you're not able to kind of go back to that original source and assess the validity of it, which people don't have the time to do, you can see how kind of this, this mob mentality um, takes off and people become very offended by a wider idea as opposed to the specific index incident, which is just fascinating. What are your thoughts, Brian, on Hersha herself? I find her, I kind of want to be Hersha's friend. There's something so kind of upbeat and energetic and positive about her. She's obviously been through this really difficult experience. But what are your thoughts on, on Hersha herself in terms of the type of resilience that she's demonstrating so far?
2: Well, I, I think it's um, interesting that she, she's also had uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, she describes this illness as devastating her life what's extraordinary is that she managed to battle through that and and come out the other side and i think one of the problems with what happened to her with this this public shaming is that you could go back into that space because chronic fatigue can make you feel like giving up and you know it's it's hopeless it's pointless you know i can't get better and whatever i do it doesn't seem to make any difference i mean there was a big risk that hersha could have slipped back into because this looks like something that's out of her control, a bit like chronic fatigue. No one seems to be able to fix it. And so it could have woken up a really, really... I mean, it did. I mean, she describes how devastating it was. But what I think is fantastic is that she showed enormous resilience around that and then started to think about how she could get out of here, what she could do.
0: And I think that's lovely that she's she's able to transfer those skills from one challenging situation to another. And I love that point in the story where you can see her saying, I'm not going to be a victim at this point. I'm actually going to change the trajectory. I could go down this rabbit hole. I could get really negative online, get really nasty online and get caught up on that and try and fight people in this way or I do what I know how to do, which is comedy. And I think that's really empowering. On the humour point, humour is actually one of the questions on a lot of
3: um, resilience questionnaires. So whether somebody is able to see the humorous side of things, even when they're challenging or difficult. She's obviously very funny, and she does sort of use humour in a really clever way. And I just think in general, she's incredibly agile, whether it's perspective taking, whether it's applying different techniques, optimism, hope, she sort of bounces around. She's constantly readjusting her sort of skill set to
0: use whatever she needs to sort of manage how she's feeling. Brian, this is a really common phenomenon online and something that we're seeing more and more. And people can actually get quite tribal and clicky online very quickly. And they can really feel right to tackle or challenge or cancel another group because of an opposing belief, for example. What's going on for people when when they do that and when they do it with such venom sometimes online?
2: Well, I think think this is because fundamentally the, the human brain is a sort of incredibly sophisticated pattern matcher. So what it does is it looks for things in the outside world that look like, sound like, smell like, feel like, and then it reactivates a matrix that's been laid down before. And one of the problems is that if it activates a strong emotion that activates an amazingly powerful feeling of rightness. So the power of belief is, is if you like, on steroids when emotions involve. So emotions encode beliefs and they, they, they encode them onto your hard disk. But then later, anything that wakes up that belief gives you this very powerful, almost it's like a reflex, you know, it's like hitting someone's patella uh, with, with, with a little hammer and their knee jerks. So this is a knee jerk response. And then what you have is, is the wonderful Daniel Kahneman's uh, system one, the fast system, gives system two the answer. So your thinking brain receives the answer from system one because it's the mood and the emotion that says, this is rubbish, this is stupid, this is idiot, this, this, this person should be. And we, and we feel very emotional about it. So it has a very, very powerful feeling of rightness. It's, all, it's also incredibly quick, it's the fastest neural circuit in your brain. So it then activates how you think, feel, and behave. But interestingly, your thinking brain is unaware that your your pattern matcher has given it the answer. And it's also unaware of its unawareness. So your emotion becomes the secret author. It becomes quite binary. It becomes, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm good, you're bad. And, And then it creates the venom and the hatred that's attached to that. And I think we're sort of hardwired to do this as human beings. But what's so interesting about this feeling of rightness is that people who think more slowly are more able to challenge their system one, their automatic response. People who think very fast, and emotion makes you think very fast, actually you find it much, much harder to challenge the veracity of their thinking. So they have this conviction of their own rectitude that they're right and the other person's wrong. And this creates this very polar process which we're seeing played out in our society in a pretty ugly way.
0: One of the really amazing things that Hersha does, and I don't know if I would have the courage to do it, is she makes that decision to reach out to Uncle Roger. Elle, what are your thoughts on that, on her decision to do that and and what that took and and what it did? So a lot of us
3: when we're stressed out, and especially if that's been um, kind of created by another person, what we tend to do is blame that person or blame others and have sort of bad feelings towards them. And I think in this instance, what Hersha does is quite extraordinary because she has no existing relationship with Uncle Roger. All she knows is that he's caused her a whole wealth of pain and difficulty, and she still reaches out. She's obviously thinking that there's a good chance that he's going to be a good guy and be supportive. And I think giving someone the benefit of the doubt that actually they're probably a really good person and that they've just been misinterpreted or their actions have unintentionally impacted you, when you're quite emotional about something, which she must have been, she's anxious and stressed out, and understandably so, to then be able to go, outside of your own emotions to think, okay, but he didn't mean to do this and maybe he's a really good guy. Maybe I should reach out to him and have a chat. I think that shows real strength of character.
0: It's not an easy thing to do, that's for sure. Quite a clever thing to do though, because he has the ear of the people that are giving her a really hard time. So I think that is quite a sophisticated thing that she did. But I think you're right, Elle. I think she did that feeling that he actually was probably going to be quite a good guy and, and she's actually maybe even a fan of his comedy and his humour. So she's, you know, she kind of connected to him on that comedic level as well. Um, But I think such an important fork in the road for her story and really interested to see how the rest of the story unfolds.
1: My feeling was, as soon as I got the message from him, was that we were on the same page. And so it it felt very much like we were suddenly a team. There was never a feeling of... This guy has wronged me. Like, never. I know that he wasn't meaning to take me down. So, yeah, going into it, I felt like we were kind of um, in it together. And, you know, we got on really well straight away. You know, he was very apologetic and was obviously... Well, not obviously, but he was very much of the mindset of, we need to make this good for you and also make it good for the both of us. You know, let's move this story on. We did um, an Instagram story um, that went out on both our feeds.
2: Hey, Instagram, guess who I just had dinner with? This
1: lady! Egg
2: fried rice lady. Go follow her. Hersha is really good. Uh, He's a great presenter, really funny. But don't post anything mean on Instagram, all right? Otherwise, Uncle Roger will come for you.
1: So I just thought very innocently, was like, well, that's that. You know, we'll make our video. Forget about it. And I said, when I was saying to Nigel, I was like, well, at least it hasn't been in the national papers or anything. And he kind of looked at me really sheepishly like, oh, God, you just have no idea. Um, And he was like, it is blowing up. In all of East Asia. It is like the Twitter of China have got hold of it. It's in all of the main newspapers. It's going online everywhere. And it's not gonna be long before it spreads over to over here. And honestly, I I almost threw up my dinner. But at that point I was like, What? And he's like, I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And I've never, I've never I felt like I literally went cold with fear and was like but it's already bad. A YouTube video by stand-up comedian Nigel Eng went viral in just a few hours early this month.
0: Uncle Roger, I'm not sure what you'd like me
1: to call you. I'll begin (laughs) with you, because clearly you were outraged by what Hersha was doing. You know, at one point, it was in the top five stories. And to me, that was like, yeah, that's cool if you're in the top five for doing something cool, but for being globally shamed? was like, this is terrible, like, this is... I don't know, it's like, I wonder if everyone else has this thought that people I don't know anymore, like, people I went to school with, people who, like, follow me on Instagram, people that, you know, they must be watching this and cringing for me. You know, it's like the opposite of, oh, when I make it big, everyone's going to be like, oh, look how cool her life is. It's like the opposite, it's like, oh, my God, look at that car crash. I felt like that person... (laughs) What really started to upset me, and when I started to actually get terrified for my career, and I guess slightly my mental health, was that professional journalists were, were now honing in on the story of why this was making people so angry. And they were linking me, so they were saying that me, Hershey Patel personally, had culturally appropriated a traditional recipe, claimed it to be her way of cooking, and decimated an entire culture. Food and cooking, especially in my culture, and I know in East Asian cultures, is, you know, so important. If you're saying you're doing things in a traditional way, people get upset if it's not done in the right way, and I get that, I understand that. But the the horror came when these articles that were written online about me saying that I was basically being a, a racist. So this story that kind of took on a life of its own, for Nigel, it took on a life of its own. He was like, I didn't mean for it to become a race war. So, you know, from an innocuous online YouTube comedy video to these articles with this kind of um, angle, it was really horrific. It wasn't like, oh, this is just funny and it's gonna go away. It was like, no, if, if someone Googles my name now, and this is me trying to make it as an actor at the very start of a you know acting career, if they Google my name, they're gonna find Hersha Patel, the ignorant wannabe cook. I, at that moment, felt completely sort of helpless. And so I felt like I owed it to myself to try and get through this and learn how to deal with it in a positive way and move forwards from it and grow from it. And because I felt that if I let this beat me, then that would be it, that would be me over. Pre my illness, so before 2015, Um, I know that this would have ended it for me, like, in terms of career. um, I know that I would have shut down my social media and I would never have done something in the public eye again. But what I'd learned from being unwell, so three years of illness and getting well, um, was I'd gained a massive range of tools to deal with something like this, I guess. So during my illness, I learned how to meditate. I had a lot of therapy. So I'd done a lot of neuro-linguistic programming. Um, I'd learned about the mind and body connection. I'd, I'd basically gone deep spiritually. So when this happened to me, it wasn't like, oh, well, this is brilliant. I was waiting for something like this. Um, not at all. I was terrified. and I, I wanted it to go away. And, and every day I felt sick. I felt all of that. But at the same time, something in my head was like, right, you're not feeling very confident, go meditate. Every morning I was meditating. I was writing in my journal. I was slowing down. I was trying to sleep more. I was listening to my breath. Alongside that, I was just really pushing a different narrative, which was, you're gonna make the best out of this. You can do this. You can get through this. You know, this is, this is not a bad thing. This is a gift. You're, you know, something good can come out of this. And um, I feel like it did. I feel like I was able to turn it on its head. To actually show global shaming and public shaming and council culture for what it is, completely ridiculous. Like, you know, and, um, and so that's the kind of approach that I took was to kind of use humour Um, And I didn't know if it would work. So Nigel and I decided to do a collaboration video. um, And his first thought was, well, you should do egg fried rice. And I was like, no, I'm not doing egg fried rice. People are gonna hate me even more, I can't. Uh, So I kind of refused. I was like, you do it. He's like, well, I don't care about cooking. I don't even like cooking. I don't know how to make egg fried rice. You know, part of me was like, what do I do? I don't wanna cook and I don't wanna prove myself. And then I just thought, look, Uh, Okay, Nigel, we'll do it. We'll do the cooking, but we're going to own this and we're going to make this into comedy. You know, we very much collaborated. So, we finally meet. And we had a really good time filming it. It was really fun. Uncle Rog, I've heard on the grapevine that you really like rice.
2: Yeah, Uncle Roger like rice.
1: And you've got some quite strong opinions about egg fried rice, I've
2: heard. Oh, egg fried rice, Uncle Roger's favourite dish.
1: Because nobody's ever seen a public global shaming story go in this direction, people, like, suddenly loved it. And, and the new story, you know, and not cooking rice properly, gone. You know, Rice Lady and Uncle Roger meeting up and making a really funny video was the new story. And the tide just turned and it was, it, you know, it was quite, like, I've never felt so relieved. Um, But but also extremely interesting in that suddenly we'd taken this story that the public had created, they'd decided to hate me, um, but we'd then taken it back and gone, no, here's how it's going to go. Um, And they'd taken it on and gone, oh, yeah, no, no, this is good. Like, these two people, they're really funny. Oh, my God, what a wholesome story. What a brilliant way of dealing with public shaming. And suddenly that was the story. And, like, obviously that's a lot more boring than globally shaming someone. Um, But it tapped into something that a lot of people didn't know that they wanted. And as soon as they got it, it was, like, this real feeling of love. I didn't know that that was how the public would react. You know, I, both Nigel and I were really terrified that it wouldn't go the right way. Me more so than him. And I'm so glad that, you know, we basically put ourselves out there again instead of hiding away. taken me a long time to get to the point where I can you know make content and be confident and I really wasn't very confident at the point where I met him you know I'd lost a lot of confidence and direction and meeting him he's like the opposite and what he taught me was just be confident and if you care about what people think you're kind of not going to get anywhere he gets a lot of abuse if he'd listened to all the abuse he wouldn't be getting millions of views for every video he does. You know, he'd have stopped. And so he taught me a lesson very early on, which was just to be confident in that way. And that was that was a real gift, you know. That was really important for someone like me at that point. I needed that, so, um, you know, that was a little silver lining that, that came out of it, actually. You know, one of my proudest moments, I think this is in my life, is receiving messages and i you know i've had a few of them from people particularly younger people saying how i've helped them deal with their own bullying situations or help them understand how to deal with being online i genuinely think this is a you know a huge issue that affects so many people badly and you know ruins a lot of lives and so to get those messages for them to have learnt a lesson that they're going to carry out themselves in future, is one of my most successful moments. So if someone came to me and asked me, um, you know, how do I deal with cancel culture, what should I do? First of all, stop looking at the comments. You know, if you, if you can find a friend or a loved one or someone close to you, who you can give your account to, so they can kind of oversee it. And instead of reacting to what's happening online try and react to how you're feeling so if you're feeling awful and if you're feeling bad and if you feel like your career's over if you feel like you're failure if you feel like everyone hates you just try and deal with that emotion if it's going to a therapist if it's talking to your parents if it's talking to a loved one anything just If you feel like you can't deal with that emotion, deal with that first, because that will give you the direction that you need to then deal with whatever else is going on. Um, Because that's basically what happened to me. I very much owned it and I think I can tell a, a, a good story from it and help other people, I think.
0: Go on, Hersha. I think that was brilliant. And what's really interesting about her story is the fact that instead of disappearing, which would have been really easy to do and hoping that it would all blow over and go away, she actually chose to make herself much more visible. But one of the things that she does pick out is this kind of very human concern that she has about how the people that matter to her will view her and actually worrying that perhaps they've changed their opinion of her because of some of the stuff that they're reading. What are your thoughts on that? How we
3: are viewed in the eyes of others means a lot to us. And for a lot of us, sometimes how we're viewed in the eyes of others can actually mean more to us than how we view ourselves. And as adults, one of the things we look to do is try and build a more independent view of ourselves um, and not just care about the views of others. But to some extent, we always care what others think. I think knowing that all of that news and stories has now hit the UK, and she can walk down the street and bump into a friend from school who will think, Oh, I've seen that video. That's just prolonging this sense of sort of shame, and the fact that she knows that that's going to be with her longer term unless she changes the narrative. In a situation where I think a lot of people would feel pretty powerless and like something's happening to them, she sort of grabs the reins and says, No. I'm changing this narrative. And I think that's the most
0: fascinating part about the whole thing. It's a real turning point in the story for her, isn't it? Brian, what are your thoughts on, on some of the strategies that she's using? So she makes that lovely point that before her illness, actually, this would have floored her. But within her illness, she uncovers and develops these strategies. So what are your thoughts on some of the things that she's doing? For example, how she's talking to herself?
2: I think it's amazing. It's that old thing, isn't it? If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. But I think that she actually got stronger because of some of the techniques that she used with her illness. She talks about these, these tools that she uses. And I think she has this insight that thoughts are thoughts and this I can because she's managed to, to, to deal with her illness and her concept that something good can come out of this. And I think uh, particularly after her conversation with with Nigel, she realizes their stuff doesn't have to be my stuff. So I think she stops making their stuff her stuff. You know, I think that whole way that she dealt with a a devastating illness, those tools and techniques were genuinely transferable. And she starts to bring them to a situation that she has very little control of. But then she starts to take back a sense of agency about what she can influence and control. And as soon as you do that as a human being, as soon as you convert the threat to the challenge, you switch off the rumination, you switch off the cognitive-emotional fusion that we all get stuck in. And you can start to think, okay, how do I get out of here? What do I need to do? And she clearly did that with her illness. And then she transfers those skills into a really, really tough arena.
0: And I think one of the things she does lovely, and it's very sophisticated, is recognising that emotion drives behavior so the emotion was driving people to negatively appraise her to say horrible things to her to ostracize her so she by changing the emotion and injecting humor and making people actually feel differently about this she opened them up to 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 leave different comments and to respond to her differently and I think it was so brave to cook rice again I think I would have been like absolutely no that's the one thing we're definitely not doing because that landed me in trouble in the first place but I think that is fantastic that she was able to to trust Nigel after everything as well and to collaborate so authentically together Elle what are your thoughts on Hirsch's connection with Uncle Roger? Yeah, so I think it's
3: a really significant change when she catches up with him, they're on the same page, they got on well, find each other funny, they strike up a good relationship quite quickly. And I think she's gone from being alone in this situation to having a close companion and someone who completely gets it because they've been in it with her. So someone who can identify with her situation and actually goes beyond that to try and help her get out of it. And I think that's probably quite defining for her in terms of the outcome and in terms of how she was probably feeling at the time so I know it was a bit of a rocky road still but I think because they were also both creative they also used that creativity and that bond between them to then turn things around and I think that just one person in a difficult situation can make a huge difference but obviously this was also part of the solution for her. I do think it's a testament to him too. At the time, he'd only really seen an upside. So actually he put himself out there again to help her.
0: I think it's a really important part of the story that you've picked out in that kind of movement from feeling alone into feeling that actually I have support to deal with this. And I think Hirsch's story is really uplifting and it's very solution-focused. And I think it's very important that she does share her story with particularly young people. But I think with everyone Um, in the current world of work and the current way that we socialize. But I think one important reflection is that actually this is a really serious issue. And to Elle's point, if you feel alone in dealing with this, then it's very easy to get overwhelmed and to really get dragged down by this. Um, And we've seen this play out and we've seen very serious implications of this, for example, in the UK with Caroline Flack more recently and the, the online abuse and trolling that she endured and what happened there and the seriousness of that outcome. I think where we can work to help people understand that to use Hersha's word, the tide does change. So there will be a point at which that kind of abuse stops and people's attention gets directed elsewhere. And I think what's lovely in Hersha's story is that she was able to work with Roger or Nigel, to manipulate the tide a little bit, to kind of the speed at which it retreated and the direction in which it went and how positive the next wave was. She was able to take some control and influence over that. And I think that's the travesty, that's the danger, is that sometimes people feel that there are no mechanisms for altering the trajectory or the narrative, and it can just feel such a lonely, isolated, overwhelming place. So I love this about her: that she's trying to tell this story that actually, you know, you can influence things you can start to think about what you pay attention to what comments you notice you start to tune into your own emotions and your ability to regulate those emotions and that's the important part it's not the way that those other people make you feel it's actually starting to really tune into how you navigate your emotional response to this and then move into a place of positive action In this episode, we've been thinking about the impact of this on Hersha, so on an adult. I think what's really, really important to tune into is so many social media users are young people, are adolescents, and what we know about the adolescent brain is that it is going through a period of immense rewiring and restructuring. During adolescence and in your teenage years, it becomes incredibly important to you what your peers think of you and how you are seen in the eyes of others. And actually across the lifespan, that is the point in your life where it is most important that you feel that you are accepted, that other people think positively of you, and actually to have criticism or perceive criticism during that period can be really damaging. And for children and young people, the level of emotional pain that they experience when they feel that they're excluded or they've been kicked out of the group or they've been identified as being slightly different or odd, that that can have a real legacy on the beliefs that they hold about themselves as they go through life. I think what we need to understand at a societal level is to help people understand how they navigate the online environment, so how they keep themselves safe how if they experience victimization or bullying or shaming in any way, the emotional response that they're likely to have to that and then how they would move towards a place of regulation. So what we can do to be a bit more HERSHA, so how we'd be very solution-focused in this. But I think we we have a a collective responsibility to be a bit kinder to each other online. And if you notice that someone is being bullied or, or victimized, checking in with them to just make sure that they are they are feeling and they're doing okay in the exact same way that you would do in the physical world. Noticing that in the online spaces is really important. Brian, what are you going to take away from Hersha's story?
2: I think the big takeaway for me is how Hersha learnt to deal with adversity. I mean, she had the adversity of her chronic fatigue syndrome, a debilitating illness that made her housebound for a period of time. But she, she developed a toolkit And she actually, I think, um, then translated and transferred that toolkit to the adversity that she experienced with the shaming. I think she's a a wonderful example of habituating, getting used to the fact that life is difficult rather than sensitizing to it. And I think there's a real message here because it links to emotional regulation. And being able to regulate our emotions is a really, really important uh, human capacity and and I think what she talked about is in her sort of messages at the end you know don't look at social media don't react to it but react to how you feel and that I think is building a toolkit that helps improve emotional regulation and I think she's done that for herself and I think this you know this is something that that should be in the national curriculum uh it it, we just need to help our youngsters who are facing I think as you outlined a really difficult space with this How can they manage it and cope with it? Because those tools could be really powerful for what is a a tough old space for some people sometimes.
0: Elle, what about you? Key
3: takeaway. So I think for me, just the fact that um, Hersha was just so agile and dynamic and there's a lot of um, things that she learned to do Um, sort of during her adult life to manage her earlier illness, but she applied that to really different situations. And I think we can kind of get stuck in our ways and think that, you know, we've got our ways for managing things. And actually, uh, I know I personally don't think out of the box that much. And if all else fails, I'll, you know, defer to a glass of wine instead. So I think that just remembering, be it meditation, journaling or whatever, like there's lots of things that most of us don't do that we could. And just thinking about Hersh's situation and things she did to manage something like global shaming, where my problems are generally smaller than that. I think, um, yeah, she's quite inspirational
0: in that sense. Hersh's story is an important reminder to be kind, and that on the other end of every harsh comment made online is a real person. A big part of the work that we do at Positive is in education, working in schools and universities helping children, young people, and young adults develop a psychological toolkit so that they have the skills to enable them to be aware of and regulate their emotions to manage the challenges that will come their way in life. If Hersh's story has resonated with you and you've encountered online abuse yourself, know that you're not alone and there's lots you can do to help. From recognizing and managing your own emotions, taking a break from social media. And also there's lots of help and support out there for people who have been bullied and victimized online. If you're interested in learning more about the psychological skills and concepts we talk about in this series, we're now running open positive programs for people from all backgrounds. The program trains you in four core areas of psychological capability and helps you to develop practical skills, which allow you to adapt, thrive, and be more resilient, both in your personal and professional lives. You can find out more by following the link in the description. And you can also save 10% with our special Resilient Road discount code, RR10. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps us to reach more people. Next time, we'll be hearing the inspirational story of Vernon Turner, the former NFL player who achieved greatness against extraordinary odds. The Resilient Road is brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush, and featured Hersha Patel. You can visit her YouTube channel by searching for Hersha Verity. This episode was produced by Natalia Rodriguez, Cass Denton, Eli Block and Palama Kaufman with sound design by Natalia Rodriguez. It was mixed by Palama Kaufman and the executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org.